0: The RAF is right on target in the new fight against Islamic State. Afghanistan, why the world is looking the other way. The EU, in or out for the military, we've got two generals going head to head. And Jutland a hundred years ago, the greatest sea battle of the 20th century, are their lessons for today's Royal Navy. The RAF operating from Cyprus is bombing IS, Islamic State positions in the captured Iraqi city of Fallujah. Specialist British ground troops are training Iraqi soldiers how to use shipped-in weapons against the Islamist extremists. It's all part of the West and the Iraqi government's operation to take back major towns between Baghdad and the Syrian border. In a moment we'll talk to our defence analyst Christopher Lee but first let's cross to BFPS reporter Simon Newton in Cyprus. Hello Simon. Uh, this is called Operation Shader. What are the targets exactly?
1: Well, there's uh, targets across Iraq and uh, Syria, a mix of what the RAF call deliberate and dynamic targeting. So, in recent days, uh, we've seen the typhoons, the tornadoes and the Reapers concentrating on this battle around Fallujah, supporting Iraqi uh, ground forces. They've been hitting ammo stockpiles, groups of IS fighters, uh, artillery, even tunnels used by IS, using these brimstone and paveway Missiles, But they've also been busy elsewhere, particularly around Mosul, which, of course, Iraq's second city. It's the big prize for Iraqi and Kurdish forces and pro- possibly the next target after Fallujah. Two interesting missions there in the last week. On Thursday, typhoons destroyed a, a building north of Baghdad, which uh, the MOD say contained a group of uh, suicide bombers. And on Monday this week, tornadoes hit two IED factories in northern Syria, Uh, destroying both of them with uh, £1,000 bombs.
0: And Simon, give us the numbers. How many sorties and over what period?
1: Well, the RAF airstrikes began in late September 2014, so around 20 months or so ago now. Initially, just eight tornadoes at Akrotiri, joined by six typhoons, two more GR4s last December. Now, to date, the RAF has carried out 775 airstrikes on Iraq. It's estimated a much smaller number on Syria those predominantly by uh, Reaper UAVs, uh, what commonly called drones. Uh, that's about a third of all the non-US airstrikes on Iraq, and that's more than any other contributing country. Now, to put that into context, uh, across both Iraq and Syria, c- the coalition's carried out 12,500 airstrikes. 9,500 of those have been conducted by the Americans. Uh, and the cost so far, well, since uh, August 2014, it's cost the coalition Seven point four billion dollars. That's just over five billion pounds. Around eight million pounds a day.
0: Mm, our our defence analyst Christopher Lee is sitting here in the studio with me. Uh, Christopher Simon mentioned Mosul being the big prize. What's the significance of Fallujah?
2: Um, Fallujah. You start with Fallujah. Fallujah is well, apart from anything else, of what it is uh, 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 as a place. Uh, Fallujah is the city of mosques. It's called the City of Mosques, 200 mosques there. It is very much a a Sunni mosque. Um, 300,000 population, so a big city. Uh, And it was held originally by al-Qaeda, then IS moved in, in 2014. And it's been the main target... That you're not able to get into it. And one of the reasons for 50,000 or so sort of refugees that are actually sort of uh, hel- held, it, held in there. But the important thing uh, here is that if you can work on Fallujah and at the same time, and you know, notice that uh, Simon uh, was talking about uh, the attacks on Fallujah, but also at the same time on, on Mosul. And what you do, you diminish the ability of the enemy by going for maybe four or five different targets at the same time. And so you, you disrupt command, you dis, dis, disrupt uh, uh, communications, also the, the ability to sort of say to people, like, we'll shift, we'll shift people to another town mm. or, 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 or something like that. But if you look at it in the bigger picture, what they're trying to do here, you start in the north, getting up towards the, the border of Mosul, Erbil, Kirkuk, uh, come down to Ramadi, Baghdad, um, which is about 40 miles away from, uh, from, from Fallujah. You can see it's a concentrated effort to get, take back what has been in IS hands for the past uh, two years. Unfortunately, um, the, the Iraqis are not good at this. But when you see how much air cover they need and they're still not taking places, I mean, for example, it's, a, it's astonishing sort of numbers of uh, 12,500, I think, uh, Simon, you said, 12,500 airstrikes, 9,500 by the United States. There's a lot of ordnance mm, that's yeah. going down at any time. You know, to fly one of those uh, typhoons, for example, out and back and deliver your, your payload It costs about £300,000. This is a big, big military operation on budgets as well as as commands. Yeah, uh, Simon,
0: a big military operation, as Christopher says, but the talk today is also about potential airdrops Mm. on Syria. Presumably, if that were to happen, the RAF would be involved.
1: Well... Syria, obviously, is where that humanitarian disaster is is unfolding most starkly. There's six and a half million people displaced uh, within the borders of Syria itself, and half of those, it's estimated, are children. Um, There's thousands more people, of course, in places the regime deems disloyal. Those people are trapped by government blockades uh, without ready supplies of food and water, and they have been for, in some cases, four years or, or more. Now, today, Philip Hammond, Foreign Secretary... Was among those calling for airdrops into Syria. He uh, he admitted it will be complex and very risky, but it, uh, t- uh, if it happens, uh, you would imagine the RAF will be uh, will be heavily involved. Of course, RAF uh, C-130 Hercules from here in uh, Cyprus carried out airdrops in northern Iraq in the summer of 2014, if you remember, to help Yazidis trapped on Mount Sinjar by ISIS. So the UK definitely has the capability and the experience to to help. Uh, Because of course Syria is is in many ways a much more complex environment and today Philip Hammond made it clear that he expects both Russia and Iran who of course have uh, key influence over Bashar al-Assad to play their part in making sure these airdrops can take place. And on that
0: subject, Christopher, um, how is Russia playing its hand at the moment over Syria?
1: Well, Russia is, is
2: so important. I mean, as Philip Hammond would would know, if you say, like, we want we want to get into the business of airdrops, you've got to make sure that all the other parties involved, including the Russians, say yes. You want to know that, for example, you can put in another operation to suppress anti-aircraft fire. And what we've seen today is that is that the Russians are saying there can be a 48-hour ceasefire in uh, Dariya, which is a Damascus suburb, where the the war almost sort of started, um, which is in a terrible state. I mean, if you think about... the whole of Syria at the moment something like 4.6, 4.7 million people are displaced and you can't actually get at them mm-hmm. and so the idea of an airdrop may not work what has to happen therefore and you need the Russians on this and they know it you have to go in on the ground and you've got 48 hours to do it Just
0: briefly Simon before you go um, living in Cyprus as you do uh, and as we said the operation mm-hmm. the RS operation against IS coming from there do you get a sense of the, kind of the buzz of the mission there?
1: Yes, I mean, I'm obviously inside the wire, so I'm subject to restrictions on what I can um, talk about. I mean, there is a, a, a tempo of operations here which uh, has been high since the very beginning. That isn't uh, in, in any way decreasing, I can tell you, just from, from being here. Um, uh, the Operation Ops Shader is a is a separate part of, of RF Aquitiba to give you some idea of the geography here, so that it's very much a self-contained area. So um, in, in terms of the buzz... I don't get any sense of that walking around the base necessarily, but you only have to look at the MOD um, updates in terms of what uh, the missions they're conducting. There are far more on there than there were, for instance, uh, a a year or so ago, and the breadth Mm -hmm. of those missions, the targets they're hitting right across Iraq and of course Syria gives you some indication that there is uh, a a momentum if you like, certainly behind the the, the British airstrikes, the British contribution
0: All right, Simon Newton, Cyprus, thank you for your time Now to Afghanistan, the war goes on and there are still British troops there but not on the front line. Today a damning amnesty report on Afghanistan says the war against the Taliban and now IS is creating one of the biggest displacements of population Uh, Christopher, there's much more to this but why do people on the move create such a huge security problem?
2: Well if you imagine, there are at the moment something like 1.2 million, according to Amnesty, 1.2 million people And this has gone move. up
0: four, uh, twi- twice I in four to, years? The last report Double. they
2: did, which was, I think, two and a half years ago, said around about 500,000, as far as they could uh, tell. But don't forget, then there was a controlled, almost in controlled environment. There was a lot of military there, and they've been, been protected. Now they're unprotected, and they are on the move, trying to get out. I mean, if you think about it, there's something like... Two and a half, maybe close to three million Afghanistans Afghans, have actually moved out of Afghanistan. But the point is, when large people start moving, it, lots of things happen. The military cannot control the area because people, the civilians, are moving into it. Also, people are uh, who are being displaced, uh, it's an ideal breeding ground for... Terrorism, or certainly people with have terrorist uh, sympathies, and that's part of the problem. Only part of the because problem. Because people yeah. are
0: vulnerable and easy to recruit.
2: Uh, vulnerable, easy to recruit, fed up, and saying, "Look." you know, a couple of years ago, when all the, the, the forces were here, you know, the British in Helmand, et uh, the Americans, they were here. We were safer. We didn't like it, but we were safer. We had to sort of put up with Taliban who move into the villages and mm. move out. Well, they were on the run. The Afghanistan army at the moment, according to this... It's not, not good, it's
0: not up to the job, according to this report.
2: No, it is not up to the job. There is an enormous amount of uh, corruption, very, very bad training. There are Western organisations, Western troops as well as civilian organisations, actually training, but it doesn't work. And I think we've got to understand two things about this, Um, is that we all went into this war or or our leaders went into this war expecting, saying, you know, we've come to help you, we've come to uh, get rid of uh, the terrorists, and this is how a state should be. Afghanistan isn't that sort of place. Afghanistan isn't a place that comes like that. And now the most crucial thing that's happened, by and large, the rest of the world is looking the other way. It's no longer you, interest you, in Afghanistan. You say that,
0: do you think the Foreign Office will be talking about this very much?
2: The Foreign Office is talking about it, but very little is done because you can't mm-hmm. get, international, you get international promises of what you would be doing, how much money you're putting in, and they're not fulfilled.
0: Oh, Still to come, 8,000 sailors dead. Something wrong with our ships today, said Admiral Beattie as the Battle of Jutland raged. Was it worth it?
3: BFBS Sit-Reb.
0: A former First Sea Lord and previous Minister for Counter Terrorism and Security has said the UK is at risk from terrorists via the Channel. It comes as migrants were rescued from there over the weekend after attempting to make the journey from France. Lord West spoke to our reporter, Kate Wattle.
4: Well, I believe that our coastline, particularly down the east coast and the Channel coast, the southern coast, are very exposed uh, to people coming in and out of the country. This has always been the case. It's something that worried me some years ago, and I've raised the issue a number of times. Times And to protect that coastline you need to have surveillance, you need intelligence of what's going on, you need to be able to establish a recognised surface picture, in other words, what is what, which contacts are what, where they're going, what they are, and then you need to have somebody who's responsible for the security, who's actually going to do the work to make it secure. Um, and when I look at uh, our coastlines, I don't believe uh, we've got um, proper surveillance, although we have now got a thing called the National Maritime Intelligence Centre, the NMIC, which is down near Portsmouth. Uh, and I set that up in 2009, but it's taken a long time to get developed. Um, so there is some intelligence. They should be able to get some pictures together. No-one seems responsible to produce a very accurate surface picture. And then it, doesn't, it appears to me there's not a single government department responsible for security. Um, to actually deliver this security. Um, and I'm afraid the government seem to have been at sixes and sevens about this, and they've been dodging questions. I've asked a lot of questions over the last 12 months. They've got rid of a, an air surveillance contract they had, and now just have an ad hoc one. We have reduced the number of border cutters down because we've sent ones to the Mediterranean. We have not got enough resources, and we are, our coastline is vulnerable to illegal immigrants, but almost more worrying than that, to terrorists.
0: In terms of logistics, maybe people that don't understand as well, three border patrol ships patrolling over 7,000 miles of coastline, how big an ask is that for them?
4: Well, it's, it's really difficult. If you're, on a, if you're on one of those little cutters, your, your horizon is probably about 10 miles, 9 miles. That's on a clear day. Um, with aerial surveillance, of course, you've got things covering a huge area and they can point out where the ship should go to, to. But otherwise, if it's on its own, that's all it can see. It can see that area and it's having to stooge around and you can't cover it at all. There are, of course, boats that work for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Um, Maritime Coast Guard Agency have people who keep keep a visual lookout. Um, there are, of course, Royal Naval ships. Um, not as many as there used to be, but... For example, there are the university training units, there are mine countermeasures vessels, because this isn't really a job for big frigates and things, um, but they're there. But who coordinates all this? And we need more assets. There's no doubt about it. If we see this as a risk, then we need more assets, and it's always up to a government, what does it want to spend its money on? And if it feels that security is important enough, it'll spend the money on it. If it doesn't, don't, and just say, well, we don't think it's important, we're not going to do it. But they won't say that. Um, they're just ducking the issue.
0: There are some speculative reports, we can't confirm them yet, that there's plans to send HMS Sutherland to the channel to help pick up possible migrant travel from France. Is that a good thing or a bad thing?
4: Well, it's a good thing because she has a capability to produce a recognised picture and she's got a helicopter, um, so it's very useful. Um, but really, we need to get a proper coordination. We I mean, need, I think, a lot more ships. I mean, it's interesting. We used to have a thing called the RNXS, the Royal Navy Auxiliary Service, which was lots of volunteers, and they cloned into another... Um, the, I think it was the MVS, another voluntary service. Maybe we should use volunteers and volunteer craft and things, partly funded by by the government. I mean, maybe that's a way of doing it, but we need a much better coverage of our coastline, um, and the government have ducked this issue, uh, and I'm pretty unimpressed, and I'm looking forward to getting an answer to my question, which I asked last week, a written question. Who is actually responsible? Which department is responsible for the security of those waters? I don't think there is one. I think there are lots and lots of ones, and no one coordinating it all and they're probably running around like headless chickens coming up with some very clever answer for me, but it won't fool me.
0: That was Lord West speaking to Kate Waffle and just a reminder, you can subscribe to SITREP as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS Sit Rep. BFBS SITREP. It's just three weeks until voting day on Europe. Still, the big debate is unresolved. What does EU membership mean for defence and national security? Well, let's get the opinions of two former military commanders with very different views. General Sir Mike Jackson was chief of the general staff at the time of the Iraq War and believes Britain should stay in the EU. And Major General Julian Thompson led three commando brigade during the Falklands War and wants Britain to vote leave. And I believe the only thing you share today, gentlemen, is your microphone. Thanks for joining us. Um, Now I want from both of you in just 30 seconds why you believe we should be in or out of Europe. General Jackson to you first in those 30 seconds. From a military point of view why should Britain stay in the EU?
5: Um, Because uh, and it's a balance of judgment. The debate is pitched at the moment in very black and white terms and There's more heat than light, it seems to me. But my balance of judgment is that um, if we were to leave, if, for example, Scotland, though, was to vote uh, well into the um, stay, we're going to have a problem, we're going to have a rerun of the State of the Union. We're going to have a rerun of what happens to Trident. Trident. Uh, All of this could bring into question our permanent membership of the Security Council. All of this, to me, means a strategic diminution of the United Kingdom's position in the world.
0: All right, General Jackson, that was was nearly a minute, so I'll give the same to Major General June (laughs) Thompson. Over to you. Why should Britain leave?
3: Well, it it can be summed up in, in two words, take control. Uh, We need to take control of our borders. At the moment, we have to let EU passport holders in. The second thing is, there's a German-authored EU Commission paper accelerating or recommending accelerating a EU defence capability. Well, this undermines NATO. And even if we don't join it initially, I think we probably would if we remained in. And as a state, we have control of our armed forces. Don't give away control. Sovereignty and defence are indivisible, and separation of accountability and responsibility puts our people in harm's way, and the EU cannot be called to account.
0: When we talk about peace, uh, General Jackson, Julian Thompson has claimed that it's a myth that the EU has kept the peace in Europe since 1945. How do you reply to that?
5: Um... There are two organisations which have really mattered since the end of the Second World War regarding Europe. One is NATO. That is there pretty much for the military defence of the constituent countries of NATO um, and the external defence. The EU, politically, whether we like it or we don't, the EU has had... Very considerable influence, I'll put it no higher than that, in removing the centuries-old hostilities uh, between the constituent states of what is now the European Union and, of course, in particular, let's not beat about the bush, the hostility as between France and Germany. That is a political process rather than a purely military defensive one.
0: General Thompson, uh, you've actually accused the EU of reckless diplomacy and kicking off the problems in
3: Ukraine. Well, we we nearly uh, had a major war because of what they did in Ukraine. And though I agree totally with General Jackson about the importance of NATO, I do not believe that in the present century that there's any malice left between France and Germany and it's rather insulting to suggest that by if we left the EU they'd immediately beat each other's throats and also the record of the EU in a number of conflicts way back starting with say Northern Ireland and right up until the latest episodes in the Balkans has been pretty, pretty poor eventually we had to call in either NATO or the Americans to sort out these conflicts.
0: When we talk about um, security, a lot of the debate when it comes to defence is is focused on whether NATO is better off with or without the UK in the EU. Uh, What is your point on that, General Jackson? Better off, presumably.
5: Um, I have seen no evidence and I've seen no comment um, to say uh, that um, by Britain staying in the EU, that in any way diminishes uh, either the the EU itself uh, or indeed uh, NATO. Um, the cont- on the the contrary position, uh, a British departure, um, starts to bring questions uh, into my mind.
3: General. Well, I, I'm very worried about this idea of a Euro army and, and people can say, OK, well, we would never join it. But even if it forms up, and I think it is, it will form up, it will inevitably undermine NATO because what will happen is money will be spent setting up another headquarters, and another command organisation, which is totally unnecessary. We've got a perfectly good one in NATO. You don't want to have a duplicate... Set up, which siphons money away from what is our principal guarantee of security, which is NATO.
0: General Jackson, uh, is, yeah. is 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 uh, intelligence sharing better off with Britain within the EU or without?
5: Uh, it must be uh, probably on the margin, but better um, because if you if you diminish that intelligence sharing in whatever way, that's what you've done. I, I, I'd like just to come back to this. Um, contentious piece uh, on a, quote, European army, unquote. <laughs> um, because people use this phrase, I think, without defining what they mean by it. What I would mean by European army was the, or Navy or Air Force, would be the end of national forces. And that anybody, a Brit, who wants to join uh, the armed forces, joins the armed forces of a unified Europe under a single political authority, because that's what it would have to be. I simply don't see that. I don't think the population of this country would want that. Mm -hmm. And we retain our veto in this matter.
0: Julian Thompson, when you talk about this, I suppose what you see is... uh, You've you've talked about the EU and self-promotion and sort of living on its sort of... having an imperialistic kind of attitude. Is, Is that what you see exactly as being the problem?
3: No, I, I I agree with, with uh, General Jackson that, that we probably wouldn't join it. Well, I say probably because you don't know what's going to happen in 5, 10, 15 years' time. All sorts of things can change. So you might get a government that says, let's join it. Well, let's suppose we don't. It's still having that set up undermines NATO. Why have two parallel uh, is there there not a way organizations in which organisations within Europe. But it is, not,
0: is there not a way in which they can complement each other?
3: Mm. No, I, I, I don't think they can, actually. It's much better to have one set-up, which is, which is NATO, in my opinion. And there are people within the European Union, the French, God love them, I, I, the great mm. people, who actually want to undermine NATO because they don't want it to, the Americans to be in charge. General
0: Jackson, when, when you hear about uh, European exercises taking place, not NATO exercise but European exercises, do you see that? as a kind of a waste, of doubling up of efforts?
5: Not of itself, no. I mean, you know, if you're um, uh, exercising um, armed forces, whatever context you're doing it is enhances the capability of those armed forces by, by the fact that they have exercised together.
3: And we do y- a unilateral uh, exercise, or bilateral exercise with the French, but you can go on doing that. But you, you presumably you... think
0: that, that is worthwhile
3: regardless. Yeah. Oh yes, you can do bilateral exercises. I mean, the French marines exercise with our marines a lot. Well, no. But it doesn't mean that you have to be part of the EU to do it. And, and to go back to the intelligence side, we get our, mess, our best intelligence from a thing called the Five Eyes, which is America... Uh, the Australians, New Zealanders, and Canada, and ourselves, and there's no reason why at the same time we cannot pass on intelligence to some of our some of our EU partners. Others, if we passed it on, it would be on Mr. Putin's desk in about three minutes, probably. But the the EU actually treasures our membership of the Five Eyes because they get a lot of good intelligence from it. But you can set up intelligence agreement with, on a bilateral basis with other states without having to be a member of the EU. Just
0: finally, when you both um, vote on the 23rd of June, uh, General Jackson, how much will defence, military, security concerns be the deciding factor in your vote?
5: Very largely, um, because the financial and economic arguments uh, are utterly inconclusive, and we are bombarded with statistics, um, and the, the opponents... Uh, take those statistics apart and at the end of the day you do not know the truth and people are saying a lot, you know, just tell us the facts, the difficulty is the future is not known and cannot be known uh, we have to make a judgement
3: mm. my, my, my voting will be on the business of sovereignty because I think there is absolutely po- an accountability but one thing I would like to say which I think that we can both agree on that the service men and, and, and women out there should get a postal vote so they can vote by the eighth and get it by the eighth of June. Otherwise, you won't have a vote from your yeah. council. So get out there and get that vote. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> good. Oh, always good to end on a handshake, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time, Major General Julian Thompson, General Sir Mike Jackson. Thank you. Thousands of sailors who lost their lives and the biggest naval clash of the First World War have been remembered in a series of events, 100 years after the Battle of Jutland. First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones says what happened 100 years ago has relevance now.
4: The key lesson of Jutland from 100 years ago is that you have to be able to control the sea to be able to influence the activity you want to have there. And what the Royal Navy did 100 years ago to retain control of the sea is still vital today there are those who would threaten what we do on the high seas threaten our free movement of trade those who would try and smuggle people um, or drugs or material those who would pirate on the high seas and threaten our way of life and that's the role the royal navy still plays today so the importance of jutland uh, is reflected in the way we do our business around the world today
0: what do you make of that christopher lee
2: yeah it, it was it is true um, but the importance of Jutland, I think, is is, to, is is a number of things. One is the navy like remembering things like they remembered Trafalgar, etc.
0: And learning from things, presumably.
5: And
2: learning for things in in a, in a way, I would go even further than what the uh, what the first Sea Lord says there. Uh, the control of the sea lanes is important. I mean, if you didn't have the sea control, some control of the sea lanes, this country, the United Kingdom, for example, would probably come to a standstill in most things within about nine ten days. Hmm. Uh, majority of some like ninety six percent. Many people
0: forget that,
2: don't they? Yeah. Well, uh, ninety-six percent of what we have, we actually import by sea. Uh, But there's another aspect of it. Um, It reminds me, anyway, that the navy you design may not be the right for the battle you you fight. And one of the difficulties is designing the right navy. For example, uh, great. Play was made of the dreadnoughts. These mighty ships, nobody's seen anything like them before. The German High Sea Fleet developed the dreadnought. The Royal Navy developed the dreadnought. These great battleships, true battleships with with steel hulls, thick th- thicker than a house's hull. Um, any fought for ten minutes hmm. in the whole battle, and then they said, "Oh, we're all right. We've got the battle cruisers." Well, the battle cruisers were exactly—they were tin pot things, the sort of thing that uh, uh, that Harper and West was talking about earlier about going uh, looking for people who were smuggling children or, mm. or or adults or, or drugs or, or drugs in. Mm. But there's, an, there's, a, there's just there's just one other thing which I think we have to remember: when you design a navy, you've got to know. That the ship you design is going to might be with you for 40 years. Mm. And therefore you can only fight one sort of battle. That's the bad thing about a navy.
0: And that is all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SitRep. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a pop podcast, just search for BFBS SitRep. Bye-bye for now.